You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Herbert H. Goldberger Professor of Economics at Brown University and the founder of the Unified Growth Theory. Holding a PhD in economics from Columbia University, he is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Economic Growth, editor of the Journal of Population Economics, and co-editor of Macroeconomic Dynamics. His latest book is titled The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. It's my great honor to welcome to the show, Dr. Oded Galore. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a great pleasure to be on your show. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Um, So, as you said, I'm um, to a large extent an interdisciplinary researcher and specialist in the field of economic growth, cultural evolution, macro history, and the mathematical field of discrete dynamical systems. And over the past three decades, I was engaged to a large extent in a fascinating exploration of the roots of wealth and inequality. And in the context of this exploration, I discovered that, in fact, much of the inequality as we see it across the globe today is originated in the distant past, events that occurred hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago are still affecting economic development today. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.io, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.io podcast or check for the StartupRad.io internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.io skill as well. Okay, um, so before I get into your latest book, I wanted to start um, by getting a quick explanation of the unified growth theory and specifically the transition from Malthusian stagnation to sustained economic growth. So could you give us a quick overview? Indeed. So unified growth theory is an attempt to explore the evolution of human societies since the emergence of uh, anatomically modern human in Africa nearly 300,000 years ago. It is an attempt to develop a unified theory that would capture the entire process of development and will identify the fundamental wheels of change that govern the journey of humanity over this uh, uh, lengthy process. And what unified growth theory ultimately shows us is that there are certain wheels of change that are operating in the course of human history and they're governing the movement of societies from stagnation to growth. So broadly speaking, unified growth theory and the book that I recently uh, released, The Journey of Humanity, is an attempt to resolve two fundamental mysteries. The first one can be defined as the mystery of growth. 
namely what are the origins of the dramatic transformation in living standards that occurred in the past two centuries after hundreds of thousands of years of stagnation? Or to put it differently, why is it the case that income per capita in the world economy increased 14-fold in the past 200 years after hardly any change over hundreds of thousands of years earlier? And the second mystery is the mystery of inequality, namely what is the origin of the vast inequality in the wealth of nations? Why some countries are poor and others are rich? And why much of this inequality was brought about in processes that occurred in the past two centuries? So in the context of unified growth theory, as I said, I'm trying to identify initially the wheels of change. Namely, I'm trying to identify these forces that brought about the transition from stagnation to growth. And what I identify in this process is that there are three fundamental wheels of change. The first one, not surprisingly, is technological progress. The second one is the scale of the human population. And the third one is the adaptation, predominantly cultural adaptation of the human population. And these wheels of change are operating in the course of human history and are reinforcing one another in a way that is expediting the process of technological progress. But nevertheless, quite surprisingly, income per capita remains relatively stable over most of human history. Till very recently, technological progress resulted in more people rather than richer people. And nevertheless, in this process, we see this important dualism that are characterizing what one can define as the Malthusian epoch. And this dualism is reflected in first, as I said, stagnation in living standards, but on the other hand, great dynamism in the context of technology, population, and human adaptation. So at any point in time, technological progress is nearly minuscule. Population growth is very, very small, and human adaptation is relatively modest. But over 300,000 year period of reinforcing interaction between these forces, the pace of technological progress in the world economy is increasing quite dramatically. So what happens in the course of human history is we start, humanity starts nearly 300,000 years ago in <clears throat> with a modest population that resides in East Africa. These humans are equipped with the human brain and the human brain allow humans to advance technologies. These technological advancements permit individuals to have more resources, and these resources ultimately enable larger number of children to be born and larger number of children to survive to adulthood. And consequently, Technological progress is not converted ultimately into richer people, more prosperous people, but it is converted into more people. And this reinforcing interaction is the resulting, for instance, in an enormous increase in the scale of the human population. If we focus, for instance, on the year 12,000 12, years ago, 
And we focus on the human population. At the time, the human population is about two and a half million people. But 12,000 years later, in the midst of industrialization, the human population increases dramatically to about one billion people, namely 400-fold increase in the human population, despite the fact that the standard of living remains unchanged. <clears throat> but in addition, what we see over this time period is a great improvement in the level of technology. We move from stone tool technologies that existed, say, 300,000 years ago, gradually into steam engine technology in the eve of industrialization. So this reinforcing interaction in the course of human history expedites gradually the rate of technological progress. And humanity reaches a stage in which the pace of technological progress is so rapid that individuals must start to invest in their education in order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. Namely, unlike earlier periods in which education was not needed in order to cope with the technological environment, we reach a stage, a tipping point, in which technological progress is so rapid that education is needed in order to cope with this changing technological environment. But individuals have very limited budget, and they have to economize on certain elements so as to invest in education. Parents live very close to the subsistence. They have relatively large number of children, and if they would like to educate some of them, they have to economize on the number of children. And what we see as a result of it is the onset of the demographic transition, the onset of the fertility decline that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population and permits the growth, the, the growth process to move into the modern growth regime. Namely, it frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population and permits societies to enjoy significantly higher living standards relative to what existed before. Okay, um, so your latest book is titled The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality and focuses primarily on two key questions. Um, why are humans the only species to have escaped only very recently the subsistence trap allowing us to enjoy a standard of living that vastly exceeds all others? And um, why have we progressed so unequally around the world, resulting in the great disparities between nations that exist today? So I wanted to start with the first question about humanity's escape from the subsistence trap. So from what I've seen, uh, most of the existing research attributes this to some combination of geographical, institutional, and cultural factors. Um, the question, however, remains what combination of, of factors enabled this transition from subsistence to sustain growth um, about 200 years ago in Northwestern Europe, as opposed to any other time and place in history. Right, so when we think about the transition from stagnation to growth, as you just suggested, it does not occur at the same time period across the globe. Some societies are taking off at the beginning of the 19th century. Others are lagging behind and are taking off towards the end of the 20th century. And since this takeoff is associated on average with a 14-fold increase in income per capita, enormous divergence is occurring in the world economy. 
And consequently, if we would like to understand the roots of inequality today, if we would like to understand why some countries are rich and others are poor, we have to ask ourselves what brought about this differential timing of transition from stagnation to growth across the globe, why some societies are taking off much earlier than others. Now, when we think about the causes of this differential timing of transition, we can relate to different forces that occurred in the course of human history. We can think about the forces of colonialism, we can think about the institutional factor, we can think about cultural elements, geographical elements, and human diversity. And in the context of the journey of humanity, in the second part of the book, I'm trying to decipher the origins of inequality across the globe. Namely, I'm trying to peel different layers of influence that affected the degree of inequality as we see today. And as I argued before, part of what I show is that much of the inequality that we see across the globe today is originated in forces that occurred in the distant past. Forces that operated hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and even tens of thousands of years ago. Now you ask about the rise of Europe as opposed to China. There are different explanations for why do we see the takeoff of Europe earlier than the takeoff in China. An explanation that, um, and I think that each of them is, is quite important. So natural institutional forces are important, cultural forces are important. But what I would like to add to the, um, to the conventional forces that are widely discussed is the element of cultural diversity or cultural fluidity. So Europe, unlike China, is a crossroad of civilizations. It is character characterized by cultural fluidity. And this cultural fluidity permits Europe to adapt to the changing technological environment that is taking place over this time period. It is partly an adaptation that is cultural, it is partly an adaptation that is scientific, and it is partly adaptation that is technological. So if we compare the European continent and say China, we can see that there is a distinct level of diversity that exists in the two continents. Europe is culturally fluid and diverse. China, on the other hand, is relatively homogeneous. Homogeneity is serving China well in the Middle Ages. And in fact, China is dominating the world technologically over this time period. But later on, as we move into the eve of industrialization, as industrial technologies are looming in the horizon, in fact, cultural fluidity in Europe is having, having the upper hand, it permits the European population to adapt, to adjust, and ultimately to move forward and to tra transit earlier into the modern growth regime. Okay, um, but then that 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 still sort of doesn't doesn't really um, answer why the the sustained the, the growth that we saw um, occur in northwestern Europe about two hundred years ago was sustained um, as opposed to to other times. I mean, if we go back even further um, in times, for example, um, the Roman Empire, um, I, I assume um, we didn't have the same same sort of technological progress, but Europe still saw you know a period of um, economic 
growth, um, not nearly at the same scale. Um, but then uh, I, I think there were certain times, um, you know, when Europe was experiencing the dark ages, when China saw some sort of um, economic boom. But the, the, this major um, the, this major takeoff um, that occurred in, in northwestern Europe about 200 years ago, um, was there something was there some uh, factor or combination of factors besides the, the diversity um, that primed them to, to be the spot where the sustained growth originated? Right. So, so we need to distinguish here between two uh, two questions that have been conflated. The first one is what brought about the transition from stagnation to growth. What permitted the world as a whole, and in particular Europe, to take off so dramatically in the past two hundred years? And the second one <coughs> is to have a better understanding why. Some societies are taking off earlier than others, and why enormous inequality is emerging in the world economy. So let's focus again on the the answer to the first question, namely what brought about the transition from stagnation to growth? Why is it the case that over 300,000 years, we see that economies are fluctuating in terms of their standard of living very close to the subsistence level. And suddenly we see this 14-fold increase in income per capita. Why is it the case that life expectancy is fluctuating in a narrow band of 25 to 40 over most of human history? And suddenly in the past 200 years, we see this dramatic takeoff and a dramatic increase in life expectancy from about 40 to 80. And the answer is very simple. As I said before, we see the the wheels of change operating in the course of human history, technology, population, and human adaptation. And these wheels of change are inevitably bringing about a rapid technological progress. In the context of this rapid technological progress, we still see the Malthusian forces that are operating, sense that when technology is expanding, the population is expanding as well. But nevertheless, technological progress is so rapid that biological reproduction cannot catch up (coughs) with the pace of technological progress. And consequently, we start to see the emergence of economic growth. But what sustains economic growth ultimately is the rise in the demand for human capital. (coughs) Namely, what we see is that at a certain point when technological progress starts to be so rapid, human capital is needed in order to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. And consequently, we see that families emphasize the quality of their children, the education of their children, and it must come on the account of their quantity. We see the fertility decline, and it is the fertility decline that permits the growth process to be sustainable because the Malthusian forces that are basically counterbalancing the effect of technological progress on human prosperity are no longer in place. We reach a stage in which technological progress is converted into the material well-being of the population rather than into larger and larger uh, humans that are living on planet Earth. Okay, um, so this sort of leads me to this, the second question regarding 
um, inequality in, in terms of progress between different countries and regions across the world. So some people would intuitively point to colonialism and slavery to explain this inequality. Others would point to disparities um, between how well the transition from an agrarian to an industrial economy was managed, where in countries like the United States or Western Europe industrialized very gradually without much government intervention in a market-based economy and got very wealthy, whereas others like China and the USSR forcefully industrialized extreme, extremely quickly um, under communist regimes and saw much worse results and yet many others, like in Africa, have not really industrialized at all. So as I understand it, some of your conclusions differ from these conventional theories and that they look back much further in history, um, tens or even hundreds of thousands of years, um, to explain these disparities. So, uh, Dr. Galore, can you tell us a bit more about your findings vis-a-vis -vis this, this second question? Right. So, so when I think about the roots of inequality across the globe, why some societies are rich and others are poor, naturally it is tempting to think about these differences in the prosperity of nations in the context of proximate factors. You can say, well, some societies are more educated than others. Some societies have higher capital accumulation than others. Some societies employ more advanced technologies than others. But ultimately, when we focus on these proximate factors, we're not really answering the question because in the end, the question is, why is it the case that some societies invest less than others in education? Why some societies fail to invest properly in new technologies? Once, why some societies fail to, uh, to accumulate properly a physical capital? And this suggests to us that there are certain barriers in the process of accumulation, there are certain barriers in the process of technological progress that are deep-rooted. And as we try to understand these deep roots, my view is in fact an holistic view. I think that each of the forces that you mentioned earlier, colonialism, institutions, culture, geography, and human diversity is very important. But let me perhaps focus on, 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 uh, on the last element in this, uh, in, in this sequence, which has to do with, with human diversity. So what I would like to focus on is the importance of diversity for economic development. So diversity is two conflicting effects on economic prosperity. On the one hand, diversity fosters cross-fertilizations of ideas, complementarity in the production process, and consequently innovations, technological progress, and prosperity. But on the other hand, diversity is associated with social non-cohesiveness. It is associated with mistrust. It is associated with disagreement about the desirable public goods, and it is associated with um, typically with civil conflicts. And consequently, if in fact, the effect of diversity on innovativeness is positive and diminishing, and if the effect of homogeneity on social cohesiveness is positive and diminishing, it implies that there is an intermediate level of diversity that is conducive for productivity. Namely, there is a sweet spot such that societies that enjoy this sweet spot will enjoy pro higher productivity than otherwise. 
Now, historically, when we think about this sweet spot, this sweet spot is changing in the course of human development. In the past, say in the Middle Ages, societies such as China, Korea, and Japan had the optimal level of diversity. Now, typically, when we think about these societies, we do not view these societies as optimally diverse. But this was a different point in time. This was a time period in which homogeneity and social cohesiveness was much more important than innovativeness. And consequently, those societies were the ones that balance between the positive and the negative effects of diversity on productivity. But as we move to the, to, uh, to the current period, what we see in this period is faster and faster technological progress. And consequently, the importance of diversity in, in, in the context of innovations becomes more important in the course of human history. And what we see in this process gradually is that societies that are significantly more diverse have the upper hand. So for instance, if we focus on the, the past 20 years, it appears that the United States is optimally diverse. Namely, the level of diversity that exists in the United States is the level of diversity that balances between these two conflicting forces. Now, as we move uh, to the future, and, uh, and, um, and we consider the fact that technological progress is likely to continue to accelerate, it suggests to us that, in fact, the virtues of diversity will increase further as we move uh, into, the, uh, into the future, due to the fact that, as I said before, diversity will be very important in permitting societies to cope with rapidly changing technological environments. Okay, um, so you write in the description of the book that as we face ecological crisis across the globe, the journey of humanity is a book of urgent truths and enduring relevance with lessons that are both hopeful and profound. So, Dr. Galore, tell us a bit about the biggest lessons or takeaways that we as a species can learn from this book moving forward. Right. So when we think about climate change and the origins of uh, the current trend of climate change, Naturally, it is associated with the industrial pollution, with industrial pollution, and its impact on, um, on uh, the environment. But what brought about the industrial revolution? The industrial revolution is, in fact, an outcome of an increase in the pace of technological progress that ultimately bring about the adoption of steam engine technology and ultimately bring about industrialization, industrial pollution, and the current trend in climate change. But at the same time, the same forces that brought about climate change are forces that are associated with three important trends. As I suggested previously, this acceleration technological progress is associated with the fertility decline. This Acceleration technological progress is associated with human capital formation. And third, this acceleration technological progress is associated with the power of innovation. And why is it so important? 
So let's focus first on the decline in fertility. Naturally, humans are polluting planet Earth. And as I showed in one of my studies, if population growth will decline by 1%, even if the growth of output per capita will increase by a factor of 7%, carbon emission in the world economy will not change. And consequently, the fact that acceleration in technological progress brought about a gradual decline in fertility is promising in the sense that gradually we will see that the growth of the number of people that are polluting planet Earth is declining and there will be a scope for the coexistence of economic growth on the one hand and um, decline in carbon emission. Second, as I said, the population is much more educated than before. And consequently, the population is in a better position to understand the damage that individuals are creating to the environment. And consequently, the population is more likely to be ready to, um, to confine itself to behavior that is environmentally friendly. And third, and most importantly, as we saw repeatedly in the course of human history, when humans were on the brink of catastrophe, we see that human ingenuity came to play and ultimately rescue humanity from potential catastrophes. And I do not think that this will be an exception in the context of climate change, in the sense that I think that human ingenuity that was created in the past 200 years will ultimately, or human, the power of innovation that was created in the past 200 years, that is following human ingenuity that occurred in the course of the entire uh, history of humanity, is going to be, is, is going to generate the type of technologies that we cannot envision at the moment as we could not envision technological progress in the past, and these technologies are likely to um, um, not only to um, mitigate the current trend of climate change, but perhaps even to reverse it. So my optimism, as I said, is based on the fact that the forces that brought this catastrophe or potential catastrophe brought about additional elements, human capital formation, the power of innovation, and the decline in fertility all forces that are critical in mitigating the future course of climate change. Okay, um, so finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect? Well, I, I think that what I learned, I mean, so since this is based on my research over the, the past uh, uh, three decades, I think that um, one of my main lessons that, uh, that is indirectly related to your question is the importance of, of addressing uh, increasingly, uh, the importance of addressing big questions. So we see recently a trend in, in the field of economics to focus on increasingly smaller and smaller questions that are perhaps perfectly identified. And I think that what I learned from this book when I wrote the book is that 
in the end, many of, uh, of these small questions are, um, are ultimately insignificant in understanding the journey of humanity as a whole, in understanding perhaps the most important questions that are faced by, uh, by human societies. And consequently, the main lesson and the main insight that I would like in some sense to transmit to the younger generation is to focus their energy on big questions, on questions that can ultimately change the course of, uh, of humanity, questions that can change our understanding of the journey of humanity and the roots of wealth and inequality across the globe. Okay, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Galore. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.